Guys, uh, Romans chapter 9, the whole argument of Romans chapter 9, or really, I think it's, it extends beyond Romans 9, but particularly in Romans 9, Paul's whole argument has been that, that salvation is entirely of God. Um, man does not save himself, but, but you knew that. I mean, you knew that there's not any combined effort on the part of us that can save ourselves. But the, thing that Paul, the point that he's trying to make is man doesn't determine, determine his own salvation. It is something that, that God determines, he has determined, he shows mercy on whom he has mercy. He'll have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. Um, and uh, even to the point of this very offensive statement found in verse 13, at least offensive for Jews, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So, God has mercy on whomever he will. But this, the last thing that he's introduced in verse 24 is that some of those on whom he chooses to have mercy come from Israel. But... Some of those on whom he chooses to have mercy are Gentiles. Now, that's what's introduced in verse 24. Now, guys, that was a real struggle for Judaism. The whole idea that some Gentiles are going to be included in this redeemed host was just, was just repugnant to, to Judaism. And, and in many ways still is. But the idea that Gentiles were going to be included, what he is teaching us from 25 through 29, um, the idea that Gentiles are going to be included is nothing new. Um, and he uses the Old Testament to support his argument. Jews were horrified that Gentiles were being thought of as being included in, uh, in the, uh, the number of the, the, the faithful. And um, But what Paul is saying in verses 25 through 29 is that this is something that is woven into a part of taught by the Old, by, by the Old Testament. And, and he supports his argument by quoting the Old Testament. His first quote in verses 25 and 26 is from the prophet Hosea. All he's try- and by the way, the second one is going to come from Isaiah. So what he's trying to demonstrate is the very idea that Gentiles are included is nothing new. That shouldn't surprise you. That shouldn't shock Judaism. That's nothing new. He's been, it's been mentioned in the very book that you consider to be your Bible. Now, so there are two points here, guys. Um, the first point in verses 25 and 26 is that Gentiles are included. Well, that was hard enough, <laughs> but it's not as hard as the next point or the second point that he makes in verses 27 and 28, and that is, whereas Gentiles are included in verses 25 and 26, what he says in the next couple of verses is that the bulk of Judaism is not included. Uh, so his, his point is, Gentiles are going to be caught up into this thing. They're going to be included. That's the point that he's making 25 and 26. And secondly, or secondarily, um, the bulk of Judaism will not be included. The bulk of Israel, the bulk of, uh, or the uh, majority number of Jews will not be included. And that's what he says in verse 27 and 28. 
and, uh, and even 29, we'll look at that in a minute. But the first point that we come to is this idea that Gentiles will be included. Now, having said that, that's, that's, um, that's pretty easy. I mean, he mentions it, he alludes to it in verse 24, and then he says, as indeed, the, the, he says in Hosea. I mean, he's simply proving that out of this number that God chooses to have mercy on, some of those are going to be Gentiles. And then, to prove that point of verse 24, he quotes from the prophet Hosea. What I want you to see, really, or the point that I would really like you to see in both of these verses, is the description. By the way, I don't think what I'm about to say is Paul's primary intent, but it is included in here, and I want you to see it. I I want you to see the description that he gives us of the difference that is made once someone becomes a Christian. I want you to see that. Let me show you what I mean. Look at what he says in verse 25. Those who are not my people, uh, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved. Um, so what he does is give you a description of men uh, outside of the household of faith. How does he describe them? Well, first of all, those who were not my people. Um, and they are not beloved. Now, guys, also, you, you understand that that quote is out of the book of Hosea. Do you remember the book of Hosea? It's a great book. It's considered a minor prophet, and Hosea is the, is the prophet that's told to go marry a prostitute. you remember that? Her name is Gomer. And anybody who would marry a woman by the name of Gomer is just asking for trouble, but... <laughs> Um, but he is told to go um, marry this woman by the name of Gomer who proves to be unfaithful to him. And then he's told to go get her again. And ultimately in chapter 3, he buys her off of, a, off of a slave block. He bids for his own wife, the woman who has borne him a, two or three children by this point. He goes to the auction block and has to bid on his own wife. And finally, because he has the highest bid... He gets his wife, and there she is standing in all of her nakedness, and he covers her and takes her home and says, all right, now, uh, I want to still love you as my wife. The whole point of the book of Hosea is to describe Israel as adulteresses. That is, people who are outside of the faith are not beloved. They are not faithful they are adulteresses because they're giving their hearts to that which is not the proper husband. They exhibit infidelity, which is an ugly word. And anybody, or I hope none of you have ever tasted of marital infidelity, but that's the whole picture, is that um, those outside of Christ are not my people. They're not beloved. They are, they are adulteresses. They are unfaithful. It's a, it's a picture of the non-Christian position, folks. You're not my people. You're unfaithful. You're not beloved. You're not the beloved. Now, but the thing that I, um, I hope you'll see is, but once... Once this work of grace takes place in the life of someone, that changes. Notice, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will 
called beloved. What is it that we become? It's not that we simply become forgiven, but we become my people, his people. From an outcast to the beloved. Um, guys, um, I, I think I've told you this story before, but in uh, that three months that I spent in Budapest, and it was during the winter, and, and, um, uh, and I took a commentary of Martin Lloyd-Jones with me from Romans chapter 7. It was Romans 7 that I was reading for Lloyd-Jones. And, and Susie, we, I remember particularly we were in Vienna, and, and uh, Susie was shopping in all these little places, and I was sitting in a McDonald's. And the thing that, that became so clear um, through a, a Martin Lloyd-Jones um, commentary is that we are not only considered to be loved people, we are wives. We are married. You know, gang, um, if you uh, want to uh, alert yourself to something as you um, study your Bibles in the future, try to be keen to the idea of the number of times that the imagery is that Jesus Christ is married. He's married to you. You're the bride. He's the bridegroom. It's not uh, enough to think of ourselves as, as simply forgiven people. We're married. We've entered into the most intimate of all relationships. We've entered into marriage. Gang, um, everything that you can think that is true about marriage is true about us. Um, you know, um, um, one of the things that we as Americans prize is, is uh, the, the whole idea of a work ethic. You know, somebody who works hard and, and climbs the corporate ladder and, and makes his way in the corporate world and and finally achieves and is rewarded and is respected by his peers. And, and he gets there because of grit. He gets there because of um, uh, hard work and intelligence and, and devotion and, and a few breaks here and there. But ultimately, he's pulled himself up by the bootstraps and he is the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the hero of, the, of, the, of corporate America. And then he goes out and he finds himself a girl to marry. And everything that he has worked so hard to have now, how does she get it? She simply marries him. <laughs> um, I, I, my point is, all of these, these, these things that are, that are his, that are, that are the products of labor and hard work and, and all of that, they're now hers. Because she married him. Um, that's, that's the idea. Everything, every little jot and tittle, every little piece of righteousness that needed to be performed, that was done by somebody, but not you. And how did you get it? Oh, you just married him. It all became yours when you entered into this, this intimacy 
of marriage. It's not enough, gang, to simply think, oh, well, I got a ticket to heaven stuck in my pocket and I'm sprayed with a coat of asbestos. I won't burn in hell because Jesus died for my sin. That's true. And I, and I, and I want to try to deprecate the value of, of that. But let me simply say it only tells you a bit because you're married. You're a bride. You know, for men, that's a little bit harder than it is for you women. For a woman to think of herself as a bride, she already is, or many of you are. But for for men to think of themselves as a bride, uh, that's harder for us. But that's who we are. Gang, um, Christianity is not about us becoming a better person. You know, I became, I'm I'm a Christian because it makes me a better man. No, no, no. Yes. I hope it does make you a better man. I hope it does uh, do all kinds of things and changes of our behavior. But primarily, Christianity is about a union that you have with the person of Jesus Christ. You are in union. Now, I, I, I don't mean to embarrass anybody. I don't. But I'm telling you, I'm not doing anything beyond what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. No, in Ephesians chapter 5 where he takes the whole one flesh act of marriage and says, if you want to understand the intimacy that you, that you enjoy with your, with your Savior, then think of that. You want to see that? I'll show it to you. I mean, he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking of the church you know, when we think of one flesh, I know what we think about. <laughs> uh, we all, our little minds race to one thing. A very intimate, the, the, the most of intimate acts. That's where our minds go. And, 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 and indeed should. But that's the thing that is used by Paul to describe the intimacy that exists between us and Jesus. You know, guys, that's a phenomenal thing that... that uh, part, of the, uh, part of the purpose of the intimacy of marriage is to give you just a, a foretaste of something that you have and that exists between you and your Savior. You are in union with Christ. And so all of this discussion about whether I can lose my salvation and, you know, all that business is just, it's, it's wasted energy. You know, um, Spurgeon, they used to say to Spurgeon, um, Spurgeon, um, aren't you afraid that you can slip through the fingers of God? Spurgeon's reply was, I am the fingers of God. That is, I'm joined to Him. I'm in union with Christ. Guys, I would say this to you. At the heart of everything that I believe theologically, and I love theology, I think many... But at the heart of everything that I believe is that. It is the very center of my theological system. Union. Union. Not Jesus died for my sin, but union with Jesus Christ. This mystical union that takes place uh, in regeneration when the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. So everything that He is, everything that He's done, Everything that he's accomplished, everything that he is that he is has become mine. How did you get that, Jimmy? I married him. So did you. And that's what I think is behind this whole 
And by the way, I, I said to you, I don't think that's Paul's primary intent. What his primary intent is to say to his Jewish audience that Gentiles are included and Hosea predicted this. It's, it's woven into their, their prophets. That's what his primary intent is. But I've, I'm just taking you, your attention to the, to the fact that he describes this as somebody who was alienated from this God has now been brought in to the most intimate of relationships with him. You know, I could uh, I could go further about being married to Christ, but we we won't. Let's um, I guess let's move on. All right. Um, now that was hard enough for Judaism. It was hard enough for Jews to think, oh my, Gentiles are going to be included. But well, what was even harder than that is for a Jew to swallow the notion that any Jew would ever be rejected which is the point of verses 27 through 29. For a Jew, all was well with his soul simply because he was a Jew. And you know, you see that in the New Testament. We have Abraham as our father. You know, the, you know that's all they need. We are, we're, I've got uh, Jewish blood flowing in my veins, and so therefore, um, I'm fine. So it's hard enough to be told that Gentiles are going to be included. But then he turns around and says, not only are Gentiles going to be included, but the bulk of Judaism is not. Look at it, guys. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, guys, I got all kinds of degrees. I've got, um, you know, I got a BS and I got an MDiv and I got a DMIN and I got all these little degrees, but it didn't take any of them to understand that verse. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel that the number of the sons of it be is the sand of the sea, only a remnant. Only a remnant of them will be saved. That's what he's telling Judaism. Jews prided themselves on their possession of and their, and their knowledge of, of the scriptures. Um, but it was these very scriptures that Paul uses to point out that they had they had chosen to overlook truths that are contained. This is this is something that said uh, in the course of Jesus. Listen, Jesus says this to Judaism. He says, "You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may that you may have life." Jews prided themselves on being scholars and being experts in this book called the Torah. And Jesus says, you're searching them, but you're missing the very point of the whole book. Paul's saying the same thing. He is using their book to prove his point that only a remnant of Judaism will be saved, and they missed it. There was a a, a selective myopia. They would read right over, they would read these passages and, I mean, this is a quote from Isaiah, ladies and gentlemen, that he uses to, um, to support this po- the point that he's making. You know, guys, just d- don't turn here, just let me do it, but um, I don't know whether you have any Jewish friends, but, um, I mean, the place to take a Jewish friend is Isaiah 53. I don't know whether you know that or not, but if you've never 
But guys, listen to this. i got to do go fast. But um, For who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a dry root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All we like sheep have gone astray. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet his mouth, he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Now who is that? I mean, for, for opened, redeemed Christian eyes, that is so abundantly clear and obvious to whom that points. And yet, that's not a New Testament quote, ladies and gentlemen. That's from the Old Testament. That's from the book that Judaism reads, studies, and preaches from this very day. How do you miss it? You know what, um, just kind of somewhat as a side, we read our Bibles like that too. We have kind of a selective myopia. There are certain things in the New, uh, New and Old Testament we don't want to talk about either. We don't want to read. We don't want to read those passages because we don't know about, I don't like about that. We just skip right over them. You know, guys, um, you've heard me talk this, this Sunday uh, about giving and... and um, well, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue to to raise that subject, but I am tonight, aren't I? But uh, just to tell you this, the elders um, the elders meet uh, once a month here at Grace Van, and um, we're studying a book and have been studying a book for I mean we we've we've already studied one book we've already completed one book, and it was a great it was a Brian Chapel book and uh, um, uh, Holiness by Grace and it was very profitable it was. Our session meetings are spent like this. We, spent, we take the first hour and we study and pray together. And then we try to make all the big decisions in an hour and go home. <laughs> but the, the, the most important thing is that time spent together studying God's Word together. Anyway, we're reading a book together. We're reading a Randy Alcorn book together. And um, uh, the book is on um, money, possessions, and eternity. That's the book that your elders are studying together. It's a, it's a good book and... But anyway, um, our first time in that book was this past Sunday. And so what we do is we just, you know, we all read it. We all come and we bring our books and we say, okay, what would you find that you like? What did you think was interesting? Yada, yada. Well, one of the first comments that were made, that was made, was by Pat Scholes. And um, Pat Scholes says, you know what? I, I'm not sure I believe this, this author and his statistics concerning the number of times this subject is raised in the New Testament. The amount of information and he, and he, and he, uh, about our relationship to material things and money, and etc. He says, I couldn't believe it when I read it in, the, in this book. And he said, he, he goes on to say, or Pat did, I guess I just chose to read over those verses. That's not exactly an exact quote, but he said something like that. Guys, we do that. And I'm not just talking about that one subject. I'm talking about we read our Bible somewhat like Jews read theirs with a selective myopia. Um, now, 
unfortunately for Judaism, I mean, we may miss texts on giving, but Judaism missed texts on the promised Messiah. And that will ruin you. So blinded were they by their own prejudice that they missed the truth in their own Bibles. How can you do that? How can you pride yourself on being a student of, in possession of, and a lover of this book? And rewrite all those passages. You know, that, that ought to be a warning to, for all of us guys. Um, I, I did say this. Um, my comments aren't half as good as the elders' comments, but uh, one of the reasons that I change Bible so frequently is because I read through the Bible all the time, and I'm marking things that I love, and, you know, this, oh, that, this really is a sweet verse right there, and I'm underlining that one, you know, and, and um, then the next time I read the Bible, I come right back to the sweet verse, and um, which means that I've got to get rid of my underlining and get me a new Bible and start over again because there's more there than just the sweet verses. Um, but the point that Paul, what Paul is making, the point he's making is not the entirety of Israel is going to be included in this saved community. And they've missed that. And the, the way he proves his point is by quoting the Old Testament. That's genius, ladies and gentlemen. That's just sheer genius on the part of the Apostle Paul. But it's tragedy on the part of Judaism. How you can read Isaiah 53 and miss the beauties of Jesus Christ, I don't know. Well, yes, I do know. Because the God of this world is blind to the minds of the unbelieving, uh, you know. But I mean, read right over it. And how, how long have they been doing that? How long has the Old Testament been in, been in their possession? 4,000 years? And they still read right over it. Notice, um, notice in verse 27... And Isaiah cries out. He doesn't just say it or speak it or prophesy it. Even Isaiah is overcome by the very truth that he himself is speaking. He cries out. You know, it's very easy to understand what he said. But it's still shocking. Look what he says. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Guys, that's not hard to understand. But when Isaiah said it, it was shocking to him. So he just doesn't casually and kind of laissez-faire say, yeah, well, there's only going to be a remnant of those Jews. He cries out. Guys, that is really what you find in verse 27, in verse 27, is really a repeat of what he said over in verse 6, the second half where he says, for not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. Now, that, that is harder to explain than this is. This is simple to explain. I mean, you don't need any explanation from me, you know. There might be a whole bunch of them, says Isaiah, but only a remnant will be saved. Only a few of them are going to be saved. So what you've got to see, ladies and gentlemen, is that it was never God's intent 
It was never his intent to save all of Israel. So that charge over here in verse 6 that his word has failed, that's groundless. The only reason it seems to have failed is because people don't understand the intent that God had all along. And that was that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. By the way, that word remnant is a, is a hugely significant, a hugely uh, important word. Um, in the prophets, um, it describes this converted, this chastened, repentant, converted people within Israel, the remnant. Uh, after everything that happens to Israel, there will always be a remnant. Just this very small portion that will, will make it through all this. And then we come to verse 28, which is really the worst of all three, or the worst of all of it. Because he says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Um, Paul takes the next step by mentioning that that following their rejection will come their punishment. The bulk of Israel will be destroyed. That's pretty hard stuff. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah again. And um, this is pretty easy, I think. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring or a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what he's saying? He says, unless God had seen fit to save a remnant out of Israel, the outcome then would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, total destruction. But that is not going to happen because the Lord has chosen to save a remnant. You know, guys, um, I've said this a couple of times in Romans 9, but let me say it again. Um, The amazing thing about the gospel that we preach is not that everyone is not saved. The amazing thing is that anyone is saved. The amazing thing is that there's one Christian. Just one. That's the amazing thing. But just as in the case of this remnant, unless God had seen fit to save you, you would have been utterly destroyed. So the, the, uh, the right response, methinks, particularly from people like us, people who have seen the beauty of the Savior and the beauty of His work for us should be one of utter marvel. Not that He didn't save Esau, but that He saved Jacob. God is building this whole new humanity. There's some Jews, there's some Gentiles, 
um, in the New Testament, we call those people the church. Um, and in Romans 4, we're told that the real descendants of Abraham, the very pride of Judaism is to call themselves the descendant of Abraham. The real descendant of Abraham are those who have embraced the Savior that has been provided by the Heavenly Father. We're the real Jews. We're the ones that are a part of the remnant. We're a part of the new humanity. We're the bride. Father, I I pray that you will remind us that all is of grace. There There is no contribution that we have ever made or ever will. The only the only path before us is to respond to the beauty of the message that you have chosen to save. You have chosen to save some from Judaism. You have chosen to save some from the world of Gentiles. And and that would be us. And had you not chosen to give us offspring, the conclusion would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Utter destruction. But you have seen fit to have mercy upon whom you will have mercy. And from people who have received a taste of that mercy, we give you great praise, great adoration, and say again, we love you, We are sorry we love you so little. And we ask for a fresh supply of grace to love you more. We make our prayer tonight, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.